Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you guys, hypothetically, if you wanted to forcibly clear a public park, which one would you clear? Hmm. Does it have to be a public municipal park? No, I mean, let's just think park broadly, like, you know, like Lafayette Square has been done. So like if you were clearing a park, I mean, I might like to clear Rock Creek Park just so I can have it all to myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was, no I was, rollerbladers. I was thinking of all kinds of national parks. <laughs> Yosemite, just clear it. <laughs> Get rid of all the people in Yosemite. <laughs> I would clear out a theme park so I could just ride roller coasters over and over again. Yeah. Could I get Bill Barr to do that for me? I, I think if I could clear one national park, it would be one close to my house that's green with lots of trees and actually a lovely place to hang out, but always too freaking crowded. Like, you know, Logan Circle. Oh, that's a good one. Clear Logan Circle. <laughs> and I wouldn't even bring a Bible. Actually, I'll tell you what, what I would clear. Okay. Next spring, early spring. I would forcibly clear the tidal basin area so that I could take a walk near the cherry blossoms without dealing with a crowd. <laughs> okay. Wow. Without getting pushed into the tidal basin. I think I'm going to vote for that one too. Yeah. Yeah. Me yeah, too. Definitely. Do you ever heard that phrase of if it's tourist season, how come we can't shoot them? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We can forcibly no, clear we them. Won't. We don't have to shoot them. That's totally different. DC, where we only forcibly clear you. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security. The what, what are we calling this one? Oh, yes, the Drugs, Bombs, and Bibles edition. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't have my my cue cards in front of me there. It's okay. Drugs, bombs, and Bibles. We haven't done a title where we hit all three segments in the title in a while. Just FYI. It's, it's, so this is a treat for listeners. Yeah, I, I hope all the listeners are appreciating Shane's titular artisan mm-hmm. quality here. Oh, I guarantee you there is at least one person out there who tracks this and will will be tweeting at us later today because like seriously, our dedicated fans are the most dedicated of dedicated fans in the whole world of podcasts. And we love them for it. I am here in the virtual jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes who are in separate virtual studios today. We're coming to get you from three studios, three segments, three titles. It's a day of threes. I have a serious question, though, Shane. Please. You seem to be wearing a shark shirt. Yes. Is it shark? I want the shark shirt story. So this is a shirt that was given to me by my good friend, Dave, because he knows of my both fondness and fear of sharks. And he got me this shirt. It's kind of like my thing. And this is a shirt he got me for Christmas with a shark and all the different kinds of fins so you can identify which one of these ferocious beasts is coming to eat you before it happens. <laughs> I suppose if you wear this shirt, they leave you alone. I love sharks. 
I love sharks too. They're terrifying, but you know, actually only great whites really terrify me. Lots of other sharks are fine. But like I have this thing where like I'll go on Instagram and like under like the for you suggestion area, like it clearly knows I am like super, super into sharks because like 70% of what's in my suggested feed are just like shark videos and not shark attack videos, like sharks in all their glory, but like their ferocious glory. Shark porn. You could do a sharks podcast. <laughs> you, you could do a sharks podcast. An all shark edition of, of rational security. Sure. <laughs> Ratings will go through the roof. <laughs> oh my goodness. You guys on the podcast this week, more serious things. No sharks on the podcast this week, but the Egyptian government may have assisted a Saudi hit team in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a new investigation finds. Congress debates repealing an authorization for forever war, and a judge narrows the lawsuits filed over the clearing of Lafayette Square before a Trump photo op. Um, Let us start with the news uh, this week from our friend Mike Isikoff over at Yahoo News, an exclusive piece that he had Uh, detailing the travels of a private Gulfstream jet that carried a team of Saudi assassins on their way to Istanbul uh, back in October of 2018. This was the team that ultimately set upon and killed Jamal Khashoggi in the consulate in Istanbul. Uh, And what Mike finds is that this jet made a stopover in Cairo, the purpose of which, as he wrote, was, quote, to pick up a lethal dose of illegal narcotics that was injected a few hours later into the arm of Jamal Khashoggi, killing the Washington Post columnist within a matter of hours. This is the team that did this. So this is new information uh, on kind of like a piece of the story, Tammy, that we had understood a little bit, but had all these questions about. We, we've known for some time about this jet. People will kind of remember famously when Khashoggi went missing, surveillance footage of the jet landing at the airport, and these guys who we later linked to the hit team were getting off and going through security. Um, But now this stopover in Cairo raises a whole host of questions about what role the Egyptian government may have played in Khashoggi's killing. So put this in some context to hear first. What is the significance of potential Egyptian security or other assistance or complicity in the murder of this journalist? I think there are three different angles to think about here. The first is just the very simple norm violation, kind of international norms dimension of this. The Saudi decision to send a hit squad abroad to go after a dissident in another country to murder him in their diplomatic consulate was an egregious violation of international norms. And, you know, you would expect a country like that to be operating on their own when they're engaged in such an egregious violation. So that they had international cooperation with another government, sovereign government, you know, I think points to the second challenge, which is the extent to which this kind of practice going after dissidents is something that, you know, forges a coalition among autocratic governments. The Russians have done it on their own. The Belarusians have now done it on their own. The Saudis have done it on on their own. The Turks, for their part, have tried to do it. But, you know, President Biden talks about authoritarian coalitions and authoritarian alliances. Well, this seems to be such an alliance in action if the Egyptian government actually actively contributed 
by giving the drugs that were used to subdue Jamal. And then finally, you know, there's the the sort of Egyptian dimension of this. Um, human rights groups have noted the number of disappeared in Egypt escalating since the period of the coup by which now President Sisi took power. And, you know, the Saudis apparently needed to get this drug from elsewhere. They didn't have it themselves. The Yahoo story suggests that they have gotten Egyptian cooperation in this regard more than once. And wow, you know, how much are the Egyptians using this drug to subdue people domestically? And how does that fit into the human rights abuses that we know are taking place in Egypt? Ben, there was an interesting story on Tuesday in the New York Times about contractors being trained, or sorry, a U.S. State Department approved contractor training some members of the hit team that ultimately killed Shoji. There's also, Yahoo reports today, the intelligence chief from Egypt facing pressure, who I believe he's here this week, from members of Congress to more fully explain potentially the intelligence services role more broadly than even in just the, in the drug. <clears throat> Maybe there's even a possible link of training on their part. But I mean, it kind of underscores the fact which, you know, as Tammy was pointing out, you would think that a, a government like this would carry out such an operation in isolation. But, you know, the Saudis receive a lot of assistance. They received it in training from us, clearly from the Egyptians. I mean, it sort of just begs the question of whether we should be looking more deeply at not just the murder of Khashoggi, but like the whole relationship and the nature by which foreign governments are assisting and training this Saudi intelligence service, which, you know, is not particularly known as being maybe the most skilled, has relied on a lot of foreign assistance, uh, and now seems to have pretty well run amok. Yeah. So first of all, uh, when you get in bed with authoritarian, or in this case, super authoritarian governments with really nasty secret police organizations, you should not expect to come out of it looking good. Whatever arguments there may be for deep U.S.-Saudi ties, one of them is not, you know, that it's like good for U.S. morality or public, you know, public diplomacy. Uh, we do it for lots of reasons, some of them sounder than others. It's not something we do, should do, expecting that it doesn't have moral costs. And, you know, this is an example of that. By the way, that's true of the Egyptian government, too. And I do think we should constantly be evaluating and reevaluating what we're getting from these relationships and whether it justifies the moral costs that we're paying. I generally, we shouldn't be, certainly shouldn't be training hit teams or dismemberment teams. Should we be training teams, you know, people in these intelligence uh, agencies, you know, with an awareness that they're going to use our training for things that we wouldn't countenance or certainly wouldn't train them to do. Yeah, we should always be aware of that. And I do think having a sort of top to bottom look at, you know, what what is happening when when we get in bed with these intelligence ages. And then it's different from country to country. Like I don't I don't think the Jordanians who we have a particularly close intelligence relationship 
are out there murdering a whole lot of people. But I do think this is a matter that, you know, we should be thinking about all the time because, you know, you never really know when people that you train thinking they're going to use it for counterterrorism purposes turn around and uh, define what we call journalism as terrorism and, you know, you know, dismember a journalist. So I, I, I do think some of it is kind of baked into the nature of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You know, they also quite openly behead people for engaging in what we would call consensual sexual activity. So I, I, I mean, some of it's just baked into the nature of the relationship. But for exactly that reason, I think we should always be evaluating the nature of the relationship. Tammy. So, you know, Ben's fundamental point is that authoritarians are going to authoritarian. And that's obviously correct and has clear implications for how the United States should and shouldn't cooperate with them. But I think that there is a layer deeper or more specific that we can go following that logic, which is that, you know, the members of the Saudi hit squad that murdered Jamal, uh, who were trained in the United States, were trained in the United States because they're members of the personal guard of the king. And they, the training that they underwent was, you know, defensive training, right? And so it's not necessarily that they are using the training they got from the United States for this nefarious purpose. But what we know now is that this unit of the Saudi, the many varied Saudi security forces, although it is said to be a royal guard, is also sent abroad as part of hit squads. And so the clear conclusion that the U.S. government should draw from that is that we should not be providing training to any members of that service because members of that service have participated in assassination. You know, so it's sort of taking the, the spirit or the logic of the Leahy law, which it requires the United States to determine which military units that had U.S. equipment used them to abuse human rights and then to withdraw support from those units. It would extend that logic more broadly. I think there's another set of specific policy questions in terms of U.S. military and police training that grows out of this, which is, you know, a lot of what the U.S. does in working with police forces in authoritarian countries or intelligence forces in authoritarian countries, we do in the name of liberalizing reform. We say, oh, well, if we don't want an authoritarian police force to beat suspects into giving forced confessions, we should train them in forensics so that they can make their case on the basis of evidence, right? And that's the logic we use to justify the training. But Ben's point that authoritarians are going to authoritarian is a good reminder that sometimes that logic is simply a story we tell ourselves. And that maybe the real answer is we shouldn't be working with police forces and security forces in authoritarian states. We should cooperate with authoritarian states in other ways, but not in that way. So just to be clear, my point isn't just that authoritarian is going to authoritarian, though it's not a bad headline for it. My point is that you shouldn't get in bed 
with secret police organizations of authoritarian uh, states, murderous authoritarian states, there are gently authoritarian states, and then be surprised when they behave exactly the way secret police forces of authoritarian regimes always behave. And there is, you know, nothing civilizing about our engagement, uh, which we do for non-ideological reasons of state interest. And I'm not saying we should never do that. I'm just saying, you know, the degree to which people wax shocked that the Saudi government behaves exactly the way you would expect the Saudi government to behave. They do this stuff openly, you know, and they cut people's heads off in public. Why should it be surprising that they also sever limbs and dismember people in private? And I, I just don't think it should be a matter of, of particular surprise or that we should expect when obviously we should formally expect, but I don't think we should kid ourselves that when these regimes deal with us in these training regimes, it it really changes the nature of the regime. But that's also like, I mean, just to bring it back to Mike Isikov's scoop, Mike's making a different point here, which is that yes, while the Saudi regime has this history of brutal oppression of women of chopping people's heads off. The Egyptian government does not have that history. And the Egyptian government is one that I think that we tend to see over the long arc as being much more closely as aligned, you know, with our interests and maybe even with the kind of moderate tendencies that we've tried to prop up in the region. And what he's saying is like, they helped the Saudis do this. They gave them the drug. And that I think is identifying a nexus that is more troubling than the one that, that, that what you're pointing out about the Saudis. I, I guess I, I just I just think you know we shouldn't kid ourselves about the CC regime either. Fair, yeah, fair. I think the point is like we had a longer, closer intelligence and security relationship yeah. with the Egyptians, but that was a different Egypt. CC's Egypt is a very, very repressive place, the most repressive regime in Egypt's modern history. All of the statistics make that clear. And so, you know, this should be a signal to the United States to think very differently about the nature of its security cooperation. To hell with all of them. <laughs> Channeling my father. Um, well, maybe we could have my dad on the podcast. No, we're, not, we're never having my father on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, if he really insists. If insist we ever on... have a serious discussion of cancer on the podcast, we can have my dad. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. We could have the dad's edition. <laughs> Oh, no, please. Please. <laughs> the Father's Day edition of, of Rational Security. <laughs> Tammy's dad, Shane's dad, and Ben's oh, dad Lord. get together and no, see if they have a bad idea. <laughs> this is such a bad idea. This is such a bad idea. There better not be a groundswell of fan clamoring for this. Uh, let's move on. Closer to home and yet also matters far afield. Uh, reading from a Reuters report here from Monday, a U.S. Senate committee's vote on the repeal of the 2002 Authorization for Use of Military Force that allowed the war in Iraq was delayed for at least a day, as five Republicans on Monday requested a public and hearing and a classified briefing. Um, this is coming from the Senate. Five members are Mitt Romney, Mike Rounds, Marco Rubio, Ron Johnson, and Bill Haggerty have requested 
this delay on the repeal of the 2002 AUMF, there is a bipartisan majority in the House, uh, which backed legislation to repeal it. President Biden is in favor of repealing it as well. So, Ben, to get us started, this AUMF authorizes what exactly? Kind of give us, the, because there have been AUMF gets thrown around a lot over the years. Remind us of this particular one and its genesis. And then let's talk about why it's stalling in the Senate despite bipartisan majorities to repeal it. Yeah. So this is when people say the AUMF, they're usually talking about the September 2001 AUMF, uh, which is the AUMF that authorized force against those responsible for 9-11 and those who harbored them. That is usually just called the AUMF, kind of the way New York is called the city or something like that. This is a different AUMF, a little cousin AUMF that was passed the following year and is was sort of the authorizing legislation for the invasion of Iraq and has been mostly moribund uh, ever since U.S. forces left Iraq uh, in 2011, except that periodically the administration relies on it as kind of supplemental support for some of its uh, ongoing military actions. For example, when we had uh, actions against ISIS, uh, the theory that the administration articulated uh, for those military actions involved a kind of hybrid of the 2001 AUMF and the younger sibling 2002 AUMF because it has a specific Iraq nexus. Those arguments I've always thought were kind of weak, to be honest, which is another way of saying that the 2002 AUMF isn't doing a whole lot of work these days, which is why the administration doesn't mind if it gets repealed. Uh, Repealing it consequently, however, also doesn't do a lot since we're not relying on it all that much, which is why this is a I think mostly, but not entirely symbolic issue, not unimportant in its symbolism. Uh, If you're somebody who wants to stop what uh, the left calls forever war, repealing A's UMF that are not currently in use makes a certain amount of sense as a way to do that. However, if you're people who, uh, senators who, want to be very aggressive militarily with respect to ISIS and other regional uh, baddies, you're maybe a little bit more reluctant to take away legal authorities to use military force. In the House, there isn't really that much of a constituency for that. But in the Senate, there still are people like you know, Marco Rubio and and Mitt Romney, who really in the sort of John McCain tradition, believe in a robust overseas military presence. And I think there's a little bit of hesitation. What that letter that you referred to expresses is a hesitation to repeal a source of authority that has been important in the past without more granular understanding of what it would mean for 
U.S. operations overseas. And so I think it is, you know, an interesting question whether they can ultimately get this passed in the Senate, but they have run into a roadblock of, you know, a group of senators who say, hang on, hang on, slow down a minute. Let's let's figure out what it would do if we actually did this. So I, I think Ben's analysis is really thorough as a policy matter and as a sort of matter of executive legislative relations. But I also think that there's a political dimension here. And it's a challenging one, frankly, both for Democrats and Republicans, which is that, you know, for a long time, Republicans had the advantage in terms of public opinion on which party do you trust more on national security. That shifted when Obama was elected. And I think, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think the Democrats had the advantage on that question in this most recent presidential campaign. But it's something both parties uh, want and fight over is who does the American people trust, you know, the 2 a.m. phone call question. And these senators are, many of them, not all of them, aspiring presidential candidates and even in their role in the Senate, need to be credible on national security. And so part of what I think that letter represents is a degree of risk aversion. We don't want to get rid of this thing and then be caught with our pants down if something goes wrong, because then we own that mistake and the voters will punish us for it. So even though the American people want to end endless wars, they also don't want to be surprised in a bad way. And I think that's the political risk of this. And the reason that I say it affects both Democrats and Republicans, even though it was Republicans who uh, pushed for the delay, is, you know, number one, there's a Democratic president in power right now who says he supports repeal, but they want to look like they're doing it responsibly to cover themselves. And number two, Democrats and Republicans have almost no issues on which they agree in Congress right now, but national security does present one of the few, you know, countering terrorism, supporting allies, defeating China, confronting Russia, etc. And so it, it is an issue for both of them. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's my question. If this AUMF gets repealed, which, you know, Obviously, seems like a lot of people are fine doing it. It is 19 years old. <clears throat> I don't think we're invading Iraq anytime soon again. But obviously, it allows all these other things to you know to be invaded. I suppose. 
if ISIS attacks us again, we can just pass another one. Does like anybody really doubt that Congress won't be able to summon the will to authorize the president to respond to a terrorist attack? And if that's true, then like we're in a whole other like mess of shit right now, it seems. Yeah, so I don't think the concern is a catastrophic attack by ISIS on us. Remember that when ISIS flared up in 2013, 2014, it wasn't with attacks on the United States. It was with seizure of territory in Iraq and Syria, and it was with gains on the ground that might not provoke congressional action. And by the way, at the, roughly at the same time, the president asked for authorization for use of force in Syria, President Obama, and Congress refused to pass it. And so there is, I think, some justifiable concern in Congress and the administration that it's so hard to get anything done with Congress right now that it would require something truly catastrophic uh, in order for Congress to pass something. I don't actually personally share that view, but I do think I do think there is a sense that if you if you shed yourself of these authorities and then something bad happens, as Tamara says, you get caught with your pants down looking like the person who was complacent. I have a question, though. I mean, presidents always argued that they had the authority to do this anyway, right? Like, if there were some situation that the U.S. had to respond to, they would claim inherent authority. So, like, I understand that these two wars got us AUMFs because they were invasions in a way, but the president was going to go ahead and do it anyway, it seemed pretty clear. And they were both major undertakings in a way that responding to a future attack would likely not be. So why do we actually need an AUMF at all? Okay, so... Contrary to common belief, there has never really been a major long-term overseas deployment of U.S. forces without congressional authorization or, in the unique case of the Korean War, authorization by the U.N. Security Council. It is true that presidents uh, assert the authority to act in self-defense under inherent authority, and that has been used many times for relatively fleeting deployments, uh, emergency strikes, bomb Libya, and there, you know, have been some a few air campaigns like in Serbia where the president acted without uh, authorizations. But for long-term significant deployments of force overseas, even the much bashed George W. Bush, never acted without going to Congress first. And so, look, I don't think this is a big problem, because if you get rid of this authorization, first of all, the administration will act in the short term under inherent authority to the extent that there's a plausible or even a less than plausible self-defense theory. And for any longer term thing, Congress, you need to get Congress involved and they will and they'll do it successfully. That said, if you're 
as you describe, concerned chiefly about, you know, holding your, you know, your own tail with your pants down when something bad happens, taking away the president's power to wage war in a hot button part of the world is not an obvious move. I'm liking the image of holding one's own tail with their pants down. I know. I was stuck on that myself. Well, I was going to say you don't want to be left holding your dick with your pants down. But then, you know, I thought, wouldn't it be better to be couth? And so I said tail. And now I'm being called to Next time I'm just going to go with Marco Rubio doesn't want to be left holding his dick. Ooh. Now we're warming up. My goodness. Wow. It's only been half an hour in. (laughs) I just want to say, Marco, because I know you listen to the show, we have the highest regard for the state of Florida here on rational security. (laughs) I'm so tempted to make a Florida joke that Joe tells I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist. We're going to move on to the next segment once I pull up my script. It's that kind of day. Ah, yes, Lafayette Square, which is not on our list of clearing squares. Uh, This is coming from new reporting. uh, Actually, this has been widely reported, but I'll read here from the New York Times report to summarize this. A federal judge on Monday partly dismissed claims filed by Black Lives Matter, the ACLU, and others accusing the Trump administration of abusing its power to violently disperse a protest outside the White House last year. The lawsuits allege that the government violated protesters' civil rights and conspired to clear Lafayette Square so that President Trump could walk to a church near the White House where he held up, famously, a Bible. Remember, Wisniewski, is that the Bible? It's a Bible. Upside down. Upside down. Correct. Uh, but in a 51-page ruling... He did that on ruling, purpose, though. <laughs> sure he did. Of course he did. Odds. U.S. District Judge Dabney L. Friedrich, a Trump appointee, said the claims by federal conspiracy were, quote, simply too speculative to allow those parts of the lawsuit to proceed. And she also ruled that federal officials at the time who had been named as defendants, including Abdul Barr uh, and Gregory T. Monahan, who was the acting chief of the Park Police, were entitled to qualified immunity and thus could not be sued uh, for damages. So, Ben, this incident is probably one of the most memorable of Trump's time in office. And that's saying something. It was so big. It was the biggest. It was so it big. Was it was huge. Biggest. It was, it was huge. I think a lot of people are going to be confused by the judge's ruling that it was simply too speculative to say that there was a federal conspiracy because people are going to remember the images of the crowds and police and others in uniform and federal authorities coming in, dispersing them, the tear gas, the horses, the subsequent reporting about what happened at Lafayette Square. So, you know, what does the judge mean when she's saying it's simply too speculative to talk about a conspiracy? Right. So I want to say I've I've not read this opinion carefully. It's it's a 50 page opinion and I've uh, scanned it and looked at the relevant parts, but I, I have not spent quality time with it. Uh, Dabney Frederick, she's being described in these news stories as a Trump appointee, which is true. She is also a very, very smart and able federal district judge. And as best as I can tell from looking at this opinion, uh, it's quite scholarly and serious. So I, I, I don't think 
And and by the way, she does rule with the plaintiffs on a number of points. Uh, so this is not a, you know, sweep the table clean for Trump and Barr situation. Uh, that said, she does dismiss the conspiracy claims. And let me just read the two paragraphs of the opinion in which she does that, because I think they answer your question better than I could. So remember that in a motion to dismiss, you, you have to take the pled allegations as true, but only pled factual allegations as opposed to conclusions. So she, she writes, the non-conclusory allegations on which the plaintiffs contend an agreement can be inferred include the following. Before Lafayette Square was cleared, President Trump's Twitter posts threatened to use and encourage violence against protesters. President Trump directed Barr to personally lead the response to the unrest. Barr requested riot teams and other specialized agents from other federal agencies. On June 1st, law enforcement officers met at the Joint Operations Center at Lafayette Square. Before the square was cleared, Barr was seen meeting with federal law enforcement personnel and pointing north toward St. John's Church. Federal D.C. and Arlington officers used the same type of force to disperse demonstrators. And Barr and Esper walked with the president to St. John's Church after the square was cleared. These allegations taken as true do not show sufficient events, conversations, or documents indicating an agreement or meeting of the minds amongst the defendants to violate plaintiffs' rights based on their membership in a protected class. Rather, they demonstrate only that these officials were communicating with each other on June 1st, prior to and after the clearing of Lafayette Square, merely alleging that the defendant officials communicated without alleging any details of those communications that suggests an unlawful agreement cannot justify inferring the requisite agreement for a conspiracy. I think, you know, what she's saying is to have a conspiracy, you need to have an agreement. And they're providing facts that show that the thing was cleared and that the people were in touch with one another, but they don't show that there was an agreement to violate anybody's First Amendment rights. And that inference is not one that she can make. Um, now, whether that's right or wrong is something I think the D.C. Circuit may have something to say about. I, I expect the plaintiffs will appeal this and there'll be a, a, a litigation over 1985 conspiracy law in the, in the D.C. Circuit. But I, I don't think it's a crazy opinion. And I don't, I certainly don't think it is obvious that there is evidence of a conspiracy here. What there is, is obvious that, you know, Bill Barr ordered the square cleared in a needlessly violent fashion. So here's, here's my question. I mean, it happens frequently that a conspiracy is alleged when there's not an explicit agreement or instruction, but when the people who carry out the action say, you know, in depositions or in testimony, well, he didn't have to tell us because we all knew what he wanted, right? Why, why isn't that relevant here? <laughs> when we have the social media record, we have abundant reports 
reporting on what Trump was saying to others, you know, wasn't it just pretty clear what he wanted them to do? Well, so it is pretty clear, at least to me, based on these pled facts, that he wanted them to clear the square. But there can be legitimate and constitutional and illegitimate and unconstitutional reasons to clear the square. For example, Barr has said the protesters were violent, right? So if you're clearing a square because there's violent activity, uh, that may be ill-advised, but it's almost certainly not a conspiracy to violate somebody's constitutional rights. On the other hand, if you're clearing the square because you're trying to get rid of protesters who are embarrassing to the president because they're saying nasty things about the president and the president wants to wave a Bible, you know, that's a different matter. And so I think her point is the substance of the communications matter for legal purposes here. So it's not the conspiracy part that is insufficiently derived from the facts, but the conspiracy to violate constitutional rights. Well, it's not a conspiracy if what you're conspiring to do is legal, Got right? It. Then it's just an agreement. Um, you and I have a conspiracy, don't have a conspiracy to have breakfast tomorrow. We're just going to, you know, have breakfast tomorrow. It's a conspiracy if it's something that we're not supposed to do. If you plan to have breakfast tomorrow by robbing a McDonald's and demanding all of the sausage and muffins. That would be a conspiracy. Also a very good idea. That will not be happening. I can guarantee you. Um, I, I do want to ask a serious question that I think I think is going to be on the minds probably of a lot of people, probably the plaintiffs and people who support what they were trying to do. I mean, Ben, you made the point that, you know, in retrospect, you can look at this and say that Bill Barr, the attorney general, ordered the square clear with needless force. I think a lot of people are going to look at this judge's ruling and wonder, is there no recourse for when future federal office holders decide to violently disperse otherwise peaceful crowds? and feel that they can just do it with impunity. Are they, do they have cause to worry about that? Well, okay, so a couple things. First of all, the conspiracy count did not survive, but other counts did against, for example, local law enforcement. Um, and I haven't looked at those sections carefully. I don't know if anything survived against Barr. You know, so the, the second thing is that you know, Bivens actions and federal conspiracy actions are a shrinking area of the law, frankly, you know, the Supreme Court and, you know, on the, the various Bivens claims in, in this, which is separate from the conspiracy claims, Judge Frederick goes through a number of the uh, recent Supreme Court cases that sort of narrow the field for new recognizing new Bivens actions. And so that's a shrinking area of accountability, honestly, for, for federal officials. And so I, I don't know the answer to the question, what the right mechanism for, what possible mechanisms of accountability there are for Barr. One possibility, of course, would be that more information would come out about these, uh, about these communications. And then maybe you'd be in a different position with respect to alleging a conspiracy. I don't think civil actions by people against the attorney general for this incident are likely to be successful. 
All right, let us go on to something that I'm sure will be successful. Let's talk about our object lessons. Tammy, why don't you do yours first? Okay, so my object actually relates to the first story that's covered today on the podcast. And this object is a new podcast from Michael Isikoff. Uh, it's the new series of, or rather, yeah, the new series, a new season, sorry, of Conspiracy Land, which is the result of more than a year's worth of work by Michael Isikoff and colleagues to investigate the life and the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The first three episodes are out already. I listened to them over the last several days. The news that we talked about in the first segment is only one of the pieces of original reporting and news revelation in the podcast series. It's well worth listening to. Uh, one of the things that Izakoff does really well is go back into Jamal Khashoggi's early years of his career. Um, he has tapes of his interviews with other journalists from decades ago, as well as more recently. And he talks both to Hatija Cengiz, um, his Turkish fiance, who waited for him outside the consulate, and also to Jamal's apparent wife from an Islamic ceremony in Northern Virginia a month before he was killed. And both of those women give really great insight into how Jamal thought about the Saudi regime in his final days. Very cool. And if you haven't yet, go back and listen to uh, season one of Conspiracy Land, which was about the Seth Rich murder uh, and the whole crazy, genuinely crazy conspiracies behind that. It was great stuff. Uh, my object, actually, uh, it's like the weirdest log rolling for Yahoo News today, you guys. This is an article by our friend Danny Clydman. Mike Isikoff's partner in Skullduggery, also a very good podcast. Rational Security brought to you today by Skullduggery. Um, of a very good interview that Danny did with the DNI of Real Haynes, uh, which, among other things, touched upon her views on the intelligence review that President Biden has ordered to try to determine the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and she was actually, I thought she was pretty revealing in some ways. Um, she talked about their desire to, you know, find a smoking gun, but that it might not ever happen. So she's clearly setting expectations. But um, she goes on at, at some length here. This is the first time she's talked about or any senior officials talked about what the review consists of. Um, and you can we'll post a link to it on the show page. But what I found was notable is that in addition to going back and reviewing existing intelligence, uh, she confirmed, which I think Others of us have reported or even suspected that they're going to try to acquire new intelligence bearing on this question. Um, so I think that this is a good example here of the DNI giving some sense that this 90 day review is, you know, if this isn't merely a box checking exercise, this appears to be aimed at trying to acquire new information that might bear on this big question. Everyone is asking, where did the virus originate? But she's also saying, don't get your hopes up, which, uh, you know, is what you would expect a senior intelligence official to say since smoking guns rarely materialize and things like this. But it's a newsworthy interview. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So I read that as like a strategic decision by the DNI to go out there and say, we are looking for new intelligence on this by way of having that 
statement provoke chatter among people that we have coverage of in China? In other words, senior U.S. official goes out there and says, we don't have a smoking gun, but we've got, you know, we've got some tantalizing shit. And then with the hope that some people who know stuff, who we have intelligence cover of, of one means or another, are quickly emailing to each other or calling each other and saying, hey, did you hear what the fucking DNI said we did? She got it. It's like she knows so much more than we thought. Do you Did you read it that way or did you read it as primarily for domestic consumption? Um, I suppose I, I didn't read it. That wasn't my initial reaction to it. Um, but to react to it now, yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, there was also President Biden coming out and saying, we're going to do a review. And by the way, there's an element in our community, intelligence community, that actually thinks the lab leak maybe is plausible. But, you know, in terms of her saying we're seeking new intelligence and 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 going on to describe these kind of teams they put together. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, look at it this way. It what just does it feels hurt? like they're shaking the trees. I think they're definitely, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure in, in other ways they've been doing that too. And from her perspective, like what's the harm? It's like, A, it may have the effect of, as you said, provoking some chatter that maybe shakes something loose. And B, it's a level of, you know, expectation setting for a domestic audience. I mean, she's coming out and saying, we're looking really hard and taking this seriously, but if we come up empty, you have to be, you know, prepared for that. And so it's like, there's there's kind of this weird radical transparency from the intelligence community and the White House around this question, which is not to say they're being completely forthcoming, but usually on reviews of this nature, of reviews of anything related to intelligence, you generally don't have the president coming out and revealing confidence levels when it's a work in progress and then having the DNI do this. So, you know, I like your idea because frankly, you know, the political domestic consumption piece they kind of had covered. Uh, So, you know, we'll see. Who knows? I would imagine those people would be lower down the chain that we would be trying to provoke in China, though. Uh, You know, like we need like somebody to collect, you know, like this rumored defector who apparently doesn't exist, you know, to like turn themselves in and say, like, I'll show you where we kept the test tube. Yeah, I also think this radical transparency is what the Biden-Harris administration promised that they would do on intelligence. And with an effort to rebuild the the nonpartisan credibility of intelligence analysis not just for the American public, but in general. So I think this is of a piece of with what they promised. Yeah, I agree. Ben, round us out. I also have a log rolling podcast recommendation, but it's not for Yahoo News. Damn, it is a the Lawfare Podcast, Rational Security's beloved sister podcast. Older aunt is how I think of it. Yes. <laughs> David Chris, uh, the great uh, national security scholar and former head of the Justice Department's National Security Division, has been doing a cool project for the Lawfare podcast of in- interviewing the official historians of Five Eyes intelligence organizations. Most recently, we are uh, running a two-part, two-installment part of his discussion with the historian of the FBI, John Fox. And it is a uh, rollicking good conversation through the history of the FBI back from its earliest days as the Bureau of Investigation 
and it's super good fun. And, you know, because he knows all this stuff, David knows all the right questions to ask. Uh, And so uh, the the first half of this interview is now out. Second half will, I think, be out soon. Uh, so uh, check it out. They have been good. And to your point, too, about uh, David as an interviewer, it's also, yes, he knows the answers to these questions, but also like because he's such a self-professed like Intel geek, there's an he's enthusiasm. An yeah, and it's great. There's like an enthusiasm that you love in an interviewer, because even if the subject is kind of alien to you, like two people having a great time talking about it, it's just interesting. So, you know. David Chris, come on Rational Security. Nerd out. Nerd out. We love it. We love that. That's what we like to do here. But that'll be all we're doing for today because it's the end of the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. We don't have a historian of Rational Security, but if we did, we would sell like bobblehead dolls of him. We should, though. Yeah, we should. Maybe Susan could be the rational security historian. Yeah. But Susan hasn't been here from the beginning. I think Jen Patya Howell should be the rational security historian. Oh, there you go. Uh, Good call. So that's that's your new title, Jen. Please amend that to the show page. You can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us on Facebook, a long and distinguished history that we have on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. We love to see those reviews and share the podcast with your friends. Share your share it with other people who listen to podcasts or make podcasts. Share it with friends at Yahoo. We love Yahoo. They're great. Log roll it, Tell them baby. to sponsor us. <laughs> Log roll the podcast. Our audio engineer this week is Hamza Shitu. The show is produced and edited by the aforementioned historian Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by the senior senator from Florida who said he is totally willing to sign on to a repeal of Forever Wars as long as his metal tribute band authorization to use Marco Force can play the next inauguration. I like it. But that could be his band, right? Don't you think Marco Force? Marco Force One. Do you think that's what he would call his plane if he were president? I think he would call it uh, Marco Force One, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that just makes me so, that just delights me. I don't know why it's so stupid. But the other band that he could be a member of is Monkeys Holding Their Tails. Oh Lord. Yes. Well, there you go. I I doubt that he could book Sophia Yan for either of these world tours because she's pretty busy right now, but he can certainly ask Leslie. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes and Tomorrow Coffee, what is I'm Shane Harris. We will hope we'll hold you next now we'll talk to you next week bye hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out Quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands and the best part They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.